When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the thing! <laughs> That's all there needs to be said. I am Austin Hayden Smith, and I'm joined with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And Ryan. Sup, film fans? And this week we are rounding out our brief little John Carpenter retrospective. We uh, have done John Carpenter films. Now this will be the fourth film in a row. We started with Big Trouble in Little China. Then we did The Fog. Then we did Escape from New York. And today we're going to be doing probably his most lauded film, um, his most known film. Although recently people have been talking about They Live more and more. But this is the one that kind of has, uh, I think, stood the test of time as his most classic. We're talking about the 1982 instant classic, The Thing, starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, and a whole host of awesome supporting cast members, as well as some amazing dog actors. Um, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Best animal performance in history. Dude, it's dude so the, dog is, the dog is amazing. The, the, the first dog is absolutely amazing. Um and it's based off of the 1938 novel Who Goes There, which is a sort of invasion of the body snatchers type of plot. Um, and then, of course, there was a 1951 version that a lot of people believe is just replete with McCarthyite suspicions about communism infiltrating America. So we can talk about what this film means. Is he trying to emulate certain political things or is he making sort of just a really fun monster invasion of the bodies type of movie? Um, so what we'll do is first is we'll go around and get some first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw it? How many times have you seen it? Do you love this film? Where does it rank in Carpenter's filmography for you? And then what was it like revisiting this time around? Let's start with Raymond. Um, I've seen this movie <laughs> too many times to count. This is this <laughs> is my favorite John Carpenter movie. One of my favorite horror movies. One of my favorite movies in general. And mm. uh, it's the fucking best. It's, it's so good. I don't know why we watch anything Amen. else. I was so hyped up after this rewatch. I was so excited to get on uh, online and talk about it with you guys. So I think this will be a fun discussion. We had we had a great time with Escape from New York. I think all three of us agreed that was a lot of fun. And I imagine this will just be to the nth degree. If you don't like this movie, you're wrong. All right, Ryan. Man, yeah, there. I can't say enough good stuff about the movie. The first time I saw it, I was floored. I was legitimately freaked out too. Uh, the, 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 there's moments, obviously, the the, the famous uh, uh, money shot is is when they're doing the, the the defibrillator thing, and then he just goes straight <laughs> through the guy's stomach and it bites his hands off. Mm. That moment I'll never forget watching. I mean, and then and then it crawls away like a little spider thing with a head on it. It's just like what the fuck. Um, the, the, the effects are st- still hold up to this day. Are so scary and incredible. So uh, uh, shout out to the effects team. And then yeah, this rewatch. I've seen it a bunch of times too, and it never gets old. Just the I love the conceit of the film, the whole paranoia aspect. They're up in Antarctica, which we can get into about what he's going for there. Just a little history on the film and stuff. If you don't know, like this is John Carpenter's favorite movie he ever made. Uh, uh, it's his personal favorite of his own. This was, and then he always cites the, the original um, Howard Hawks version as a, as a inspiration for, uh, from him growing up. So that's kind of cool that he got to make it because he wasn't originally uh, supposed to direct the movie either. It was supposed to be Toby Hooper, the poultry guy, ah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre filmmaker. So it's cool that he got to make this. I don't. I think it would. I mean, I love Toby Hooper, but I don't think. I think that he was John Carpenter was the perfect guy to make this movie. Also, he this was his first movie he didn't score himself, hmm. which is a big deal because his scores are obviously some of the highlights of his movies. But this one he got. If if you don't score the movie yourself and you're badass at it, who's who do you get? Who's the best second best person? Ennio Morricone, of course, from Good, the Bad, <laughs> and the Ugly, and stuff. So then, uh, uh, so that's so uh, I love Ennio Morricone's score. This this movie is just amazing. Can't wait to talk about it. 
Yeah, so I hadn't seen this movie again since I was like a kid. Um, so I was really excited. I mean, I've read uh, synopses about the film and I've seen film essays and I've talked to friends. So I feel like I've revisited the film so many times in my imagination or through the eyes of other people. But this was the first time that I've just sat down and watched it. And, uh, it, you know, in decades, I guess you could say. Um, and it was it was truly, truly remarkable. And I was even scared, like now and creeped out now. Um, like not, not, oh, yeah. not as a kid, right? But you know, as a dude in his mid thirties, watching this film, and I, I watched it in a cafe with my with my noise canceling headphones on, and um, and it was oh, the perfect spot to watch it, dude. Yeah, I was I like, you really got enraptured. I well, it was I was though, like, because I'm I'm really good. I work in cafes, so I'm so used to blocking everything out. So like I, but I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, is it not? Is, I was like creeped out, and I was like, oh my god, this environment is really freaky and weird. It made my skin crawl from from the very beginning. It wasn't just the the the, the guy getting his hands bit off because of the defibrillator. It was from the beginning. The body horror is um, is really creepy, but also fascinating. You know, like I'm one of those dudes that enjoys watching those YouTube videos about like gross toenails and and cysts and bad like uh, ingrown hairs and shit like that. I'm fascinated by it, right? Um, and so the, the the body horror stuff was gross but fascinating and creepy all at the same time. And I think it'll be really interesting to talk about why this film is successful versus a film like maybe The Fog was not as successful uh, in our estimation. Raymond might disagree, but what is yeah. it? What is it about something like The Thing? Um, what is it? What, what what are the the elements that come together in the chemistry that make this such a freaking fantastic, moody? Um, but also really interesting narrative, um, whole kind of cinematic experience. I think that's going to be kind of really fun to explore. So it really is fantastic. And I always think it's worth revisiting or visiting the classics because you, you can sometimes forget like why they're a classic and you, and you might even start to think, oh, it's a classic because everybody says it's a classic. But no, sometimes it's important to revisit these things. Like I just revisited Jaws recently a few months back and I was like, oh, shoot, this is actually a fantastic film. Right, and it's the same sort of thing yeah, here. Yeah, it's it it's kind of good to 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 visit these films and be reminded of what great filmmaking is and why it's a classic. It's not just a classic because a bunch of dudes in the previous generation wrote about it and said it was. There's something masterful about it. So let's get into a quick recap, and then we'll kind of start pulling apart this masterpiece and see if we can unlock the key of what makes something a masterpiece. All right, so the film opens in Antarctica with a Norwegian helicopter tracking a running sled dog through the snow, shooting bullets at it. The dog leads the chopper to an American research base, at which point the pilot lands, exits the helicopter, shoots the dog, hitting one of the Americans, while the passenger of the helicopter drops a grenade, blows himself and the chopper up, leaving the Americans kind of confused as to what the heck was just going on. So American pilot... R.J. McCready and Dr. Copper, they take off to investigate the Norwegian base to basically check out what the deal was. While they're at the base, they find a malformed humanoid figure, so they decide to bring it back to the American base and do a little investigation on it. While doing the autopsy, uh, biologist Blair finds that there are actually normal human organisms inside this strange humanoid figure. Uh, later, the dog that was being chased through the snow wandering around the base and is, uh, is then locked up inside the cage with the other dogs in a sort of like communal kennel. Um, but the dog then starts to metamorphosize and infects all of these other dogs, turning them into these weird hybrid creatures. Uh, the crew then have to kill all the infected dogs and incinerate their bodies. And they then learn that what is happening is that there's some organism that is infecting hosts and transforming their cells so that they become perfect replicas of the former bodies. Now, after recovering some data from the Norwegians, the American team, they discover an excavation site with a, a buried alien uh, spacecraft. So Blair begins to kind of grow suspicious at this, that maybe an invasion is underway and that all life on Earth will be destroyed within a few years. So the organism then starts to make its way through the crew, leading to suspicion and paranoia about who this thing is and who is still human. They devise a blood test to see if they might be able to decipher, but the plan gets scuppered. So with no... Seeming hope, paranoia, and infection having reached a fever pitch, and bodies are being burned left and right. McCready and the others decide to blow up the entire station, but as they set the explosives, one of the men transforms into a massive thing creature, and Mac uh, flips the switch, blows up the whole damn thing, station, 
creature and everything. And as Mac is sitting there, Childs appears, one of the other American crew members at the station, saying that he got lost in the storm, but they eye each other with suspicion, not knowing if the other is human or thing. And the film closes with Childs drinking whiskey, or maybe gasoline if you investigate the online debate forums, and Mac uh, slightly chuckling. Is he chuckling about the futility of it all? That he knows that Childs is the thing, or that he himself is the thing, that they're both the thing. It leaves you with an ambiguous ending, and that is why there's just tons of theories out there and think pieces that are written about what the hell is going on, what is the thing, etc., etc. End of film. That is John Carpenter's The Thing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. So I guess first things first. Um... What is, is there something in particular that you, that stuck out for you, that, that you feel like this is something that needs to be discussed? Um, is this a thing that, that everybody talks about? Like, do you want to talk about the ambiguous ending? Do you want to talk about what the thing is? Do you want to talk about, are there themes? Is this like investigating similar McCarthyite era concerns about paranoia, suspicion? Is there something interesting about how it's America versus uh, Norway at the beginning? Is there a sort of like nationalistic undercurrent here? Is this post-Reagan? Or is this just a badass monster film and we just want to talk about how to make a really good invasion of the Body Snatchers type of film? What do you guys want to start with? Um, I, two things. Okay. For one, uh, the... Uh, Back to the effects real quick. Uh, uh, the, the person I think who needs a big shout-out is Rob Botten, the st- Rob Stan Botine. Baker's assistant. Bo- oh, sorry. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Botine? Bo- Rob Botine, yeah. Botine, okay. Uh, uh, and apparently, yeah, he, he's the one responsible for a lot of the awesome, gross, and insane thing effects. Um, and apparently he checked himself into exo- at the hospital for exhaustion after the film. Wow. So it was so intense to make. So shout out to him. In terms of uh, the what the thing is, I think that's a good place to start. Cool. You know, the, the, the original Howard Hawks one, uh, like you had mentioned, a lot of people attributed that, that, that it's like Cold War, Red Scare kind of paranoia. And then a, a, a lot of people talk about with this one, since it's closer to the what when, when does this movie come out? Eighty two, yeah, or something like that. Um, that it is a metaphor for the AIDS epidemic, right? Where the paranoia kind of, or mm. just who has AIDS, right? Mm. And, and and kind of the whole sexual revolution of that time, but like the the paranoia side, the dark side of that. And John Carpenter, I think, has alluded to the fact that you know he sees that in the film as well. I don't know if you know he was thinking that as a. Uh, uh, every step of the way as he was directing it. But I, I think you can, I think that's a, what do you guys think? Well, I feel like, wouldn't this question. be a little early for the AIDS paranoia or was it like, I, I don't know, was 80, the early eighties. I thought it was more like mid to late eighties and then into the early nineties, but maybe I'm just misremembering. Cause that was when I was a child. Raymond, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm, I don't, I, I don't know offhand when uh, the AIDS epidemic started. I, I know that, uh, the coverage surrounding it started in the the late eighties. That's kind That's of what when I was it started yeah. uh, becoming more and uh, more of an issue because of the the lack of any kind of uh, government response to it. Um, but uh, no, I would I would have to look uh, into a, a history of uh, of that epidemic. I I don't I haven't read anything about John Carpenter saying that explicitly. But if you maybe read an interview with him on that, Ryan, then I I mean I I would take him at his word. The, well, what do you all um, think the thing is? Well, it, it is interesting <laughs> that we can. It is interesting that it is. It is a nondescript, indiscriminate organism that is sort of this decentralized rhizome, like a virus. And I couldn't help. I mean, I couldn't help but think about our own scenario now in a world where a pandemic has ravaged bodies all around the world in an indiscriminate decentralized fashion and one of the things that i thought was so interesting is is um and there's a lot of philosophers and and political theorists and journalists who have written about this with regards to the paranoia of how we treat other people you know it's like when you sneeze in public now it's like committing a great sin right because everybody all eyes look to you as you're the infected so to speak right 
but it creates this process of like othering where is there a paranoia where you're outside where you're constantly looking outward from like this body that you believe is this pure body outward at these uh, potential carriers of this virus, right? And does that create a certain enmity because we are objectifying the other, turning them into some sort of object of fear or object of suspicion? And does that create a sort of paranoic social set of relationships? And then simultaneously, if you are somebody that is exhibiting symptoms, for example, then it's kind of like, do you have a responsibility to like check yourself and like, how would you, how would you even know? Like if you were just starting to, to be taken over by the thing in, uh, in the Carpenter film, right? Like, like what would you do? Of course, you've got maybe a little bit of your consciousness left, but then you've got the consciousness of the thing that is just driving you forward and impelling you to replicate. So it's kind of like, there, there's some interesting things here going on about human responsibility, human agency, um, as well as the paranoia and all these other things that I think are so interesting to explore. Yeah. That's one of the really cool things in this movie that um, it, it the the thing and its entire sort of modus uh, modus operandi or however it works it's it, it's different in subtle ways from the book. Like if you read the book, it is much more just like a virus. You don't get a sense that it has like an agenda or anything other than to just propagate and survive. But in the movie, I love those scenes where they they are all playing these kind of layers of, okay, if, if this person is the thing, then it wants to be able to hide. And if it wants to hide, what it's going to do is there's that scene where he's torching all the blood samples and the, the guy who's uh, sort of the red herring, Clark, who uh, spends all the time with the dogs. Um, he comes up and, and says, no, 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 let's, let's trust McCready. He knows what he's talking about. Let's hmm. trust the process and blah, blah, blah. And that almost makes Mac more suspicious of him just because yeah. everyone else is freaking out the way yeah. that, you know, he suspects humans would. And the fact that he steps forward and goes, no, it's, it's okay. Well, I trust you. Let's, let's do things your way. And there is this sense that even though that ends up being, once again, that ends up being a red herring you do get the sense in this movie that the thing is a lot more smart about how it chooses its moments. Whereas if you read the novella there, there are a ton of scenes where they just like in the very beginning, they walk into the hallway and the thing has transformed into a big alien just because that's the best form it can take to fight off the dogs. Like Mm. it's just, it's a lot less subtle. Um, But I, it's one A and one B. I think there there are uh, interesting things about either approach, but I really really like the the subtlety in this movie. How they they kind of have to like play chess with each other. You know, uh, obviously they kind of hit that nail on the head in the first scene where they show Mac playing against the computer. Um, but I, I love I, I love those subtle little uh, aspects of it where they're yeah. they're playing the thing, playing them, trying to put everyone else at ease. Well, but here's the thing: is we only ever get the angle from what? Here's the thing. What we, we yeah, here's the thing: we only ever get the perspective or the angle from the human, right? So all of it is interpretation. It could be very well bad interpretation. Like maybe the thing is just simply trying to survive its uh, in its own right, right? Maybe it is just a sort of like indiscriminate, non-agential entity, right? That is trying to just simply find a fucking host to survive. But and yet we, just we view it agency to it because we're watching a horror movie. Yeah, and and we and and because it's it, the way that it survives necessarily means the destruction of flesh. That then it's like okay, therefore it is evil right it is some sort of bad agent it's the bad guy but like this is the problem of encountering the others something that you can't speak with something that you can't encounter something yeah. you can't understand we just simply can't understand what's going on man it's just a little virus trying to do its thing and make it do you the virus. thing did nothing wrong that's what <laughs> yeah. i've been trying to say the whole time just like thanos and avengers i know exactly what you mean yes the thing it's just i mean we're trying to kill the thing it's just trying to survive what's wrong with us we're murderers that's right. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, you know, and maybe it it's like hybrid. Again. It's hybridizing. It's like, maybe you still endure as your cells are replicated, but in a higher state, in a higher form. It just looks violent and gross to us on the outside because it's changing your body for a yeah. minute. You don't know, man. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> is beautiful. I agree. That is kind of the question at the end, not the only question at the end of this, but I do wonder coming away from it what 
what the world would look like if the thing assimilated every living organism in the 27,000 hours that that Wilfred Brimley read. Yeah, it would be just one hive mind. Like, I I am curious. This blob of people, (laughs) yeah, the size of... You know, like the building. so often in science fiction the the sort of notion of the alien invader is all about like well they've exhausted their planet and they've come to take our resources or uh, right. in in uh, war of the worlds they harvest humans to um it's an imperial to, to interpretation fuel their machines and stuff yeah yeah and i wonder what like what is the thing's game or is it like you said it's there's a pretty good chance it might just be a virus and like it doesn't it's not aware of these people in any way and it just you know uh its only instinct is to survive in the book they say that like or they hypothesize that the only reason it turned into a dog was that was the only thing it knew how to turn into that could survive in these elements it wasn't Mm. that it wanted to like be a dog and sneak in with the other dogs and that how to know about dogs just like it, because i don't know it saw <laughs> saw a dog running i don't know like oh. that they but in well in the book the the there's an alien life form the very beginning of the book is they're already doing the autopsy on the thing and from there it turns into a dog and from there it starts turning into people but i do like i i, I would kind of like to uh watch it with that in mind that notion of is this is this thing literally just trying to survive? Does it have any kind of malice, or it, are, are these people just afraid of you know? It's not that they shouldn't be afraid of it. Like their their bodies are being stolen by this this crazy uh, this crazy virus. But it, I do I do wonder what the movie looks like if you're watching it from the thing's perspective. Well, it looks yeah, like y'all are saying. Uh... It's funny to think about it like that because it's clearly going and killing these people in these brutal ways. But yeah, it's it's it, it's a non-judgmental movie in a, in a weird way. It's just uh, it just looks gross and yeah, we have to kill this because it's killing us. It's worse. It's a survival of the fittest kind of thing, kind of thing about the thing. I mean, <laughs> the, the uh, I I love the convention of of it begins with. You know, you see the last people that this whole charade just happened to, yeah, uh, and the and the last yeah. survivor trying to kill the kill the dog. So you know that this is just going to be a cycle, and there's no end to it, basically. Unless is did they get it in that explosion? If they can burn it all out, yeah. we'll uh, th- see. There's a funny bit about that first scene. I've I've read that if you speak Norwegian, they spoil the entire movie when that guy gets out of the helicopter and starts yelling at everyone. <laughs> he just explains everything. <laughs> the fibrillator scene's gonna be awesome. At the ending, Childs is really the one who is the thing. So uh, it's gasoline, <laughs> not whiskey. That he's yeah, that's what he's. Um, no, yeah. I, 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 there is something interesting about the fact that so it's a Norwegian crew versus this American crew. And Kurt Russell, with his American sort of exceptionalism and hubris, keeps calling them Swedes, right? So is Carpenter making a sort of like statement about American hubris? Like you have these Norwegians that are like trying to save. They're trying to stop it. And of course, the arrogant Americans, because they are uncultured, they don't speak a language, they don't, they don't, they don't listen. And then, of course, they don't really like respect, uh, Going out. I mean, maybe the scientists and the doctor do, but they don't really respect the findings of the Norwegians. And then all of a sudden, it's Blair who's the one that starts like being like, "No, no, you guys don't understand how serious this is." They understood it, and they were trying yeah. to contain it. Um, and so, is there but something? One of the craziest. Yeah, because there's one also this opening. There's also the this opening bit where, where you know, when Kurt Russell says "cheating bitch" to this computer while he's drinking, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. it, it's like what? What's up there? Like he just doesn't trust reality. Is that the idea? And is this sort of like? What paranoia, what like, what nationalism can induce in you as you refuse to look at the world as it is? I don't know. One one of the, the the craziest parts, one of my favorite lines in the movie, I just think it's so funny, is when they they recover all of the research materials from the Norwegian camp, and they're all huddled around the TV, and they see the footage of them excavating the thing and pulling it out of the ice, and then one of the guys goes. I'm not going to stand around and watch this whole fucking thing. <laughs> he, says, he says something like, I don't have time to watch it. I'm like, you don't have time. You've watched the same episode of Let's Make a Deal a thousand times. 
all you have is time, and this seems pretty important. It's pretty but important. To your, to yeah. your point, it does it does seem like there's a there is a certain arrogance surrounding that decision. That like I'm not gonna watch a bunch of Norwegian footage that explains my exact predicament. I'd rather just suss this thing out. <laughs> yeah, I mean the only reason the only reason I'm pressing this kind of issue is because John Carpenter tweeted, uh, I think in like 2017 or something like that, maybe 2018, that they that they live is about yuppies and unfettered capitalism. So you know that this is a, a concern of his, right? Uh, you know that he is critiquing Reagan's America, as we talked about last week in Escape from New York. We know that he has been critical of those things and that there are themes that he's exploring. So what is, is there something similar going on here? Is he critiquing a sort of like American nationalism? Is he critiquing this like shift in empire in the world and how an empire can spread? Like what is he critiquing like, oh, if we don't trust science, then it's going to kind of bite you in the ass because you like, you don't trust the people that came before you. And even if they're, especially the Norwegians, because they're ahead of the game with their welfare state system or something like that. Right. Like, like, I don't know. Like, like I've read a couple pieces that were saying that this could be interpreted in some ways, of course, death of the author here, um, in relation to like climate change, right? And and uh, this this thing that just kind of like ravages uh, ravages the world, and that it spreads endlessly and totally indiscriminately, or something like that. And there's nowhere so, to hide from it. And there's nowhere to hide from it, and that sort of thing. And so then it leads you with this like radical pessimism, like almost like a nihilism here. Um, so is that something that's going on in this film? What what exactly can we take away here? What is the meaning? Let's show them the meaning, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do think it, it's funny because this this movie, as we've discussed just in our short conversation, has uh, is ripe with things you could potentially pull out with meaning, right? You right. know, like you could make cli- climate change uh, a one to one, and a- like AIDS. I was trying to make earlier uh, uh, the coronavirus, and, and the red scare, <laughs> the coronavirus, yeah. but. Um, I do think that there's uh, obviously just with the nature of the 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 how the wh- how the way the thing works and stuff the uh the, there there's a yeah the I I can totally see John Carpenter making a uh commentary on xenophobia and stuff just how like not trusting your neighbor and who 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 am I trusting even though I'm supposed to know this person but do I really know them and that kind of thing uh uh I don't know yeah I mean I at the very that. least in general terms he's he's exploring how something can mimetically spread and how if we don't know it, if we don't understand it, and if we don't take it seriously, then what it can do is it can lead to a process of like dehumanizing, suspicion, paranoia. You treat the other person as an other, right, or as an object. Uh And when that happens, that spreads um, unconsciously and it spreads rapidly. Like that's clearly at the very least, the very general broad stroke, something he's exploring here. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's it's funny because also like you said at the very beginning at the at the end of the day this is just a cool monster movie in Antarctica mm. right with insane special effects so it absolutely works on that level without any politics involved and stuff but yeah I, it is fun to you know kind of see he's always yeah, inserting you can project uh, a lot po- of political messages in, in, into into his movies. Mm. So. But- Synth Synth McGee poet just uh, contributed to the chat. She says uh, Carpenter faithfully adapted the novella, and that's that that's something to take away from uh, any sort of political read on this. That one one of the things that struck me on on uh, reading it to prepare for the podcast is that in in the very first chapter, that like the the very first sentence, the first paragraph is all uh, just describing the human detritus that is littered across Antarctica from their post. That it's all like about oil dripping and the, the the smell of all these like discarded rubbish that they've dispensed with in their research there and you do get the sense that like I, I there there is something being said from the from the source material that this is uh there there's a colonial aspect to it almost that like even even the forest reaches of the earth are not safe from uh from all of our fucking litter and stuff yeah, it's interesting. So in in psychoanalysis, Freud popularizes a notion of what's das Ding in uh, in German, but it's it's the Fro- uh, it's the thing, right? And uh, later psychoanalysts like Jacques Lacan have popularized this even more. And the the difference is is that when you talk about like um, 
word presentations, they take place at the level of consciousness or the subconscious, but the thing or thing presentations, they take place at the level of the unconscious, that which is completely unknowable, that which is completely beyond symbolization, that which is completely beyond language and even thought, right? And I feel like you kind of get something similar here. I mean, first of all, the film is called The Thing, and there's something about thingness, right? There's something about just calling something a thing by, by, by it being indescribable, by using this generic category that seems to imply that this is something that is beyond description, something that is beyond our symbolic regime. So then what ends up happening is um, when you respond to that thing, you're always responding to it because it's a trauma, right? You're always responding to it as something that is, that is scary, that is terrifying, and that only can reveal itself through patterns that are familiar to us, right? So that's why the humans are all like, oh, it's trying to get us or it's trying to do this and they have to ascribe agency to it because that's how they understand the world. But the thing itself, or we could say in like Kantian philosophical terms, the thing in itself, the really real, the true beyond all representations is something that is forever outside of us. It is radically other. It is the otherness of the other. It is something that is is completely beyond our capacities to Ultimately grasp. Ultimately unknowable. Yeah, and I think it's it leads to then we can start thinking about cosmic horror, right? We could start thinking about that, yeah, that this is Lovecraftian a... Sense. In Lovecraftian stuff. That's right. This is a horror that is beyond what we can even imagine in our worlds that we construct here. Well, there's... Um, Amen, uh, brother. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, who works a lot in yeah. creature features and stuff, is very inspired by Lovecraft. And he, once again, I think you kind of laughed when uh, Austin brought up uh, John Carpenter tweeting, Ryan. Um, but it is it is so great to have all these wonderful filmmakers just have their brain attached to the internet so you can always kind of like stream through and just see if they, they've dropped any nuggets of wisdom. And Guillermo del Toro's Twitter is all just his thoughts on movies, his thoughts on creatures as an abstract concept, his thoughts on specific creatures from past movies. And he's very fond of reminding uh, his, his fans and followers that um, uh, all of all of the most insane creatures you can imagine whatever makes it into the worlds of fiction those things are still drawn from a totally terrestrial understanding of biology so we we are still no matter in the the makeup the sculpting the the prosthetics in this are amazing rob botin's a fucking genius he was 22 years old when he made this movie just the like fuck? prodigiously gifted artist um but in spite of his intense creative capacity, we're even even someone like him is still going to be sort of lashed to the notion of what we perceive as a life form. You know, it may have may have extra eyes and and legs and uh, and all kinds of claws and unfurling mouths that uh, stretch out with all the dog teeth in the middle, like some incredible work in this. But it is it is still one of those things that we really can't imagine what life would look like uh, beyond our atmosphere. But isn't that would, because... It would evolve in a totally different way. Isn't that because, though, that even when the thing, quote, bursts out of uh, another organism as its host, it's already begun cell replication? So yeah, actually, it's beginning, it's beginning to imitate it. So, so what we're seeing is already an imitation of the forms that it has inhabited. So this is what I wonder. Even the alien spacecraft... What if the alien spacecraft was simply another host body, not the thing flying the spaceship? So what you have with the thing is actually something that is totally almost mystical. It is something that maybe doesn't have a body. Maybe it is something that is completely disembodied in the sense that because it we might only just understand, be microscopic. Yeah. It might even be something more fundamental than that, something, something, something more indescribable than that, because even that is something that exists. Now, maybe it would still have to exist within the, the physical laws of the universe, but, but because it's a material entity, but there's something that seems that, that we don't even see the thing, actually. All we ever see are imitations yeah. of human or earthly bodies of That's the thing's replication. They... Yeah that the the author explicitly addresses in in the novella that they when they pull it out and start picking it apart they're like it's not like anything i've ever seen and they're like we don't we don't even know if this is what it looked like at the beginning it's it, and they they say that uh one of one of the aliens it turns into to fight the dogs they're they're like well, 
why would it turn into that? And they're probably like, and they, 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 one of them just says, oh, it probably met that alien in its travels and thought it was a badass. <laughs> like, it just, <laughs> it, it, it is that, I, I do like that notion. I like that read of the film that, that it, it's almost just really more adaptive and utilitarian than malicious. And, and that it just like, it's almost like an animal when backed into a corner, it will just put on its scariest skin. It will puff itself up and try to create a sense of danger. Absolutely. Um, I, I really, I really do like that notion. It, it really gets your head turning about what, uh, what the possibilities for this are. Yeah. Ryan, do you think this is the greatest horror film ever made? It's a great question, Austin. I was going to ask you guys that. <laughs> I think it's up there. Top five for show. Um, I don't know the greatest horror movie. Like, like if you asked probably 50 people on the street, not, I, I, I know it's well known, especially to cinephiles, but yeah, it is a little under the radar person. Huh? Yeah. Your average everyday person, I don't feel like really like knows and loves the thing and thinks about that as the ultimate horror movie. But is that what the ultimate horror movie is? Does it, do you need all I the, feel like they the, would the say Exorcist. Masses? The Exorcist is the one. Yeah, they say like... or Halloween, another yeah. Carpenter movie I'd say would be up there. I don't know if that holds up as the, the greatest horror movie. You know, it depends on our metrics here. The, it goes a lot goes into what is the best horror movie. You can't oh, yeah. just ask me that. Like, <laughs> yeah. their own, but I think I think more and more people are coming to this movie and rediscovering it. Not just that uh, they haven't seen it before, Absolutely. but are rediscovering an appreciation for it. And the the conversation surrounding this movie, it went from being a total box office flop that you know almost stalled out John Carpenter's career to now it's widely regarded I would say at least by folks who care enough to discuss horror movies it's widely regarded as one one of the best horror movies and I I can't disagree Uh, well and and just best yeah best horror movies best use of uh, practical effects and and talking about how much it flopped that really uh, pissed off John Carpenter uh, apparently and you know because he was like this is my best movie why did it flop so hard which would you know, I, I'd, I'd feel bad if I made the thing and no one went and saw it. I'm like, what the fuck? What else do I got to do? Are you kidding me? Um, but I uh, – uh, fuck. What, I, I lost my train of thought. We were just talking Best horror about. film in the world? Sorry. Oh, we're live. We're not live, are we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah, best horror movie. Um, this – I love how the thing is, is whenever people are talking about practical effects – and, and why we should go back to them. This is the ultimate example of that. This is like people say, well, you know, it could be as, you know, look at the thing, right? That's what you can do. This is the, the landmarks, practical effects, uh, scary movie, and why you would ever uh, uh, fight to, to make practical over digital is you would look at a movie like The Thing and say, this is what can be done. So I think for, if for anything else, you know, that this is a huge, uh, uh, huge, Huge movie. Let's do this in, in, in the chat. History. In the chat right now, just give us either a Cronenberg or a Carpenter. Who is the master of body horror? Just in the chat, all you have to write a is, body horror. Well, Cronenberg is a body horror, but but is this this is body horror saying, too? Right? Like that's that's essentially yeah. But Cron- uh, Cronenberg took six swings at that bat, whereas John Carpenter yeah, only yeah, ever made like one 12. body horror no, movie. Every big, single Cronenberg movie. Big is. Trouble. Big Trouble has some body horror elements too. Right? Yeah, but it's not it's not defined by that the way that like you know Naked Lunch, Videodrome, The Fly, Dead Ringers has uh, some really gross aspects to it. Crash, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, that's I mean, Shivers, Rabid, the fuck. Uh, okay, the so but baby in terms growing of, out of her stomach in that movie is just in terms insane. of a genre. In terms of a genre that he's been consistent, he's the guy that is that is kind of most associated with it. But who does it better? Like, I'll be honest, in terms of like using... Cronenberg. You think Cronenberg does? Or do you think that something like... Overall. Overall. So you don't think... I mean, obviously You don't the think that thing, the quality the, of the, the thing gives him such I think, clout. I, that, that Austin, is, I think yeah. the thing is a... I, I like... I love David Cronenberg, but I think the thing is a better movie than any David Cronenberg movie. But, I, I mean, the just... Uh-huh. You're weighing... One masterpiece versus like six or seven. Also, many of the masterpieces just not quite as good as the thing. Like, so is the thing good enough for, 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 to unseat all of those other? No, I think place, I think Carpenter finishes. Carpenter might be the horror master, but David Cronenberg's the body horror master. He's okay. got his 
He's he's got his little fiefdom, but Carp Carpenter's the king. We we all love Carpenter. Well, and, and especially in terms of body horror, like like I really need to be freaked out for a sustained period of time. Uh, uh, and the, the 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 reaching into the belly and getting the VHS tape and Videodrome, the Something. entire the fly makeup and stuff, uh, uh, which is uh, existence video, video with the, the with arm video gun. Games. It's just like like he has so many examples of these kind of effects that really are effective and war and work. And the thing is, as much as I love the thing, and I do think that narratively it works better. He, he he uses the practical effects in service of an amazing story better than I think Cronenberg does, who I think kind of dwells and and really uh, kind of leans into and is uh, uh, what is it? He he Not kind of he kind of indulgent in it a little yeah. bit. Yeah yeah he, yeah he's indulgent he in it. To get and, grimy. Yeah, yeah, and I love that about him, but it's just different strokes for different folks here. John Carpenter's a way more populist filmmaker is trying to tell a more accessible story. David Cronenberg is a freak, and, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's why I think his, he's the more of the master of body horror. Okay, now before to, uh, before we go, we have to talk about the ending just because this is something that everybody freaking talks about. So, Ryan, what uh-huh. do you think is going on at the end? What is your interpretation? I think somebody is the thing. <laughs> and you do I think, think the you, thing is about to go. So and it's one of find them. the. Uh, yeah, I think I think that that's my interpretation is that it's not a happy ending, and that we're supposed to think that probably the thing is is either there or still alive in the wreckage or one of them, and and it's on and this is just going to repeat itself f- until the world is fucking fucking fucked. Okay. I, I think the ending's perfect, and if you like the fun ambiguity of it, more power to you. But um, if you don't like fun, Dean Cundy, the film cinematographer, actually said in an interview, he, he kind of tipped his hand and he, he revealed uh, who may or may not be the thing at the end of it. I won't spoil it on the podcast, but if you, if you want to check it out, you can look what? it up. It's pretty, well, it's, he well, did. No. He, okay, don't say, don't well, say t- who. This, this is exactly this is what, where you this should what spoil he said. it. He, it is what he said. He said that they used a trick of lighting to basically reveal who was human and who was not human at any given time. But a lot of people have used this trick of lighting to try to analyze the ending. And while they do come firmly down on one side, it's I've inconsistent. Watched, it is definitely inconclusive because yeah. I've watched it on and a phone. I've watched it on an iPad and I've watched it on like a big <laughs> screen to try to under, cause I've known about this for years. Cause I've known about this ending ambiguity and I'm, I've, I've been curious about it. And I still am like, really? That's cause everybody basically assumes that it's one of the two based on this trick that uh that the that the dp uh reveals right but i don't know yeah. that i don't know if it's that obvious well and, and, who, I also, and who, do, who do you think I, it is i agree with games you love in the chat he says i don't think either of them is the thing i don't necessarily agree with that part but uh the second part here that's not the point of the ending uh they say so i i would agree with that uh games you love that uh, uh. that, that the, the point of the ending is not who is or isn't the thing the point is that neither one of them can know for sure <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's the scary thing about it yeah and it is fun that i think it's fun that people have all these fan theories not because i think it's important to nail down so that we know the answer but i think it's fun to have this debate because you're like "Ooh, it could be this or it could be both or it could be neither or it doesn't matter because then they're going to freeze to death um but nevertheless maybe there's other things out there in the universe and and maybe there's this like fucking multiverse filled with this virus that is just spreading and it's inevitable for it to come back or maybe the rescue crew will come and then the thing will jump on the rescue crew and it'll get back in there and it'll secretly get back to get back to the United States or something like that or get back to Europe and start to, I mean who knows the thing that's interesting is I think it's fun when you have an ambiguous ending like this because then people have something to talk about over beers at a bar right yeah <laughs> so that's why it's great one one more thing to talk about and uh, we mentioned it up top but the best form that the thing takes is that dog at the beginning of the movie um and I watched the behind-the-scenes featurette for this one, and apparently that dog is half husky, half wolf. And it wasn't very well trained because it's a wild animal. And the trainer had to tell all the actors, hey, if he's, like, mad at you or if he's, if, if he's feeling aggressive, he won't bark or snap or anything, but he'll just kind of, like, 
sort of settle down and get this look in his eyes. So if you see that look, just no one make any sudden movements. <laughs> like, they literally just had a wild animal on set that they were just sort of flying by the seat of their pants with regards to how they would handle it. Like, it was trained with regards to hitting marks and stuff, but at the end of the day, it still had this killer instinct. And um, just reading reading about that and watching the movie in that context... And my God, that that dog is just so compelling when it's on screen. The way that they get some of those reaction shots, and you see the look that they're alluding to in the in the behind the scenes featurette, like when he's just you know kind of pacing down the hallway, and he's sort of hunched over, and he's like getting low to the ground, like he's about to pounce at any moment. It's just like it's great. And some of those reaction shots of him looking out the window, I have seen great actors give worse performances than this. <laughs> I'm telling you. I tweeted out that the second best performance in the film behind Uncle Kurt is that dog. And that isn't to shit on the other actors, but it's because that dog is fucking awesome. It's compelling. That dog's so good. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, okay. Rest well, in let peace, us jump- Jed, the, uh, the dog from the thing. Let us jump into some uh, mailbag and question stuff. So we've wrapped up Carpenter. Those are the four films that we're going to do now. That doesn't mean we'll never talk about Carpenter again. Um, I'm sure we will revisit. We've gotten lots of requests for other Carpenter films. Um, You know, so who knows if we'll be able to to come back at a particular time. The plan is to do Halloween at October, so so hopefully we can. But, uh, But this has been great. So if you guys want us to do other sort of engagements of particular directors too, you can email us at what movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Um, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do a Patreon poll too for something like this, where we, we list a director and then maybe just do another kind of month. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. But, um, anyway, let's first jump into the voicemail section. If you have a a comment or question or a film request or anything like that, please, you can definitely call us in at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. First, let's start off with Fox Metro, who wants to talk about Ferris Bueller. Hey, Weisenheimers, it's uh, Fox Metro. I noticed uh, in the Ferris Bueller episode you got going on how you went into <laughs> uh, John Hughes talking about, like, oh, yeah, the he gets tossed out a window and all these crazy things. And it just uh, brought me back to, like, thinking on, like, TV show plots where they, like, jam all kinds of crazy things in, and it's more or less, just to see what they can get away with, where they can have a prickly thorn to shave down maybe. And I'm like wondering, does Sean Hughes just like have a lot of crazy ideas that he just throws in with the kitchen sink and he's just like, eh, let's work back from there. Or is that like a common practice you think? Like what's going on with like some of these writers? Yeah, what is going on with some of these writers, Ryan? With some of these writers. Well, uh, uh, what specifically is he, like, sequence or something, is, or movie is he referring to where John Hughes threw in, oh, I guess Ferris Bueller because there's all these random scenes? Is that the idea? I mean, I think I think so, yeah. That was kind of my interpretation of the of the BM. Or we mentioned yeah, in okay, Ferris well, Bueller that there was a, a, a deleted scene or a scene in the script that maybe never got filmed where Cameron's dad comes home and throws him out the window or something yeah. like that. Um, I can't remember 100%. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I love John Hughes. and I've, I've been actually, wa- actually watching a lot of interviews with him lately, and he's an interesting dude. And I think and that movie was totally just like what uh, – you guys might have talked about this, but, but – obviously uh based on some dude in his high school that he wanted to be like right and he always saw him as himself the guy he the cool dude he always wanted to be like the tyler dirted character if you will and then uh and then he always was the cameron and i think it's just as much as just thinking about all the hijinks you could come up with in one day if you had the perfect day off i mean to me it's not that um it's not that too zany i mean it is zany but it's not like too zany yeah. Do you guys think it's too zany? Or too what do you, much? Yeah, too what do you think? Yeah. What do you think, Raymond? I. I mean, I. I'm not crazy about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think it has its charms. So what? Um. But uh, on the zaniness scale, no, I would say it's not too zany. Now, what is zany? Uh, he also wrote Baby's Day Out. I want to say. Now that's a zany and, picture. Uh, I. 
Now that is Ferris Bueller's Day Out with a baby, basically. And that's basically just a Three Stooges movie come to life. Okay, cool. Let's jump into the next voicemail. It is from Anonymous, who has a thought on Escape from New York and also a sort of suggestion about Japanese films in the future. So go ahead, Anon. Nice. Hey, guys. a uh, long-time fan of the show. I'm calling about that last episode you guys did on uh, Escape from New York, and I was uh, wondering, I think Austin mentioned it being like a prototype like a prototype of Western. I was thinking after re-watching it for the first time since I was 10, um, it's kind of like a samurai flick. I thought it was kind of like more of a Yojimbo-type thing. It was kind of going for maybe more than the samurai, uh, where it's kind of an anti-hero who lives by his own code that's kind of entrenched. So, uh, yeah, that, plus I was wondering if you guys are ever going to review maybe any like Kurosawa or any other Japanese movies uh big fan thanks funny enough uh he he mentions that that we we talked about how this was kind of Escape from New York was kind of his Sergio Leone movie whereas Assault on Precinct 13 is kind of his Howard Hawks uh takeoff of the western uh but Fistful of Dollars uh the first Man with No Name movie with Clint Eastwood was actually a remake of Yojimbo so kind of funny that he brings that up so I'm there there's a long history of uh uh, Japanese and, uh, and uh, American cinema kind of stealing from each other and overlapping. And uh, right. if you if you want to really go down the rabbit hole, if you watch Yojimbo, then you watch Django starring Franco Nero, directed by Sergio Corbucci. Then you watch Takashi Mikae's Sukiyaki Western Django. You'll see like a Western-infused samurai movie that's a remake of a samurai-infused Western movie, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, that is also a remake of just Yojimbo. <laughs> so it's like there's there's so many layers of of uh, filmmakers always stealing from each other and uh, and taking their inspirations and throwing them on the screen. And um, I, I uh, for one, would love to do uh, some Japanese cinema on the uh, the podcast. And Kurosawa himself, you know, uh, there's the whole Seven Samurai that then got remade into the Magnificent, Magnificent Seven, Seven the Western film. So I feel like that happened a lot back in the day. And also, and wasn't weren't weren't some of the samurai films from Kurosawa? Weren't they also explicitly already influenced by previous westerns that had been made in yeah. like the 40s? So again, the influence of you know Chicken and the Egg. That's right, exactly right. Filmmakers are always stealing from each other, and I love it. <laughs> I hate it. It should be illegal. <laughs> okay, let's hey, jump into <laughs> the uh, email portion of the mailbag now. If you want, like I said, you can call us or you can email us. If you want to email us, it's movies at wisecrack.co. Um, the first email that I'm going to jump into is from Mike. Where is it? Oh, hold on one second. Let me get this here. Uh, sorry. Okay. Mike, who... Um, Basically, it's a thought on kind of that was inspired by Escape from New York, uh, but kind of goes into a different direction that also talks about uh, climax and things like that. So uh, when you mentioned discussing Gaspar Noé's films, Climax, Enter the Void in particular, I immediately hoped that if or when this occurs, you might delve into when, why, and how psychedelic and surrealist films work as transcendentalist or philosophically and artistically deep versus when they merely appropriate a style in a shallow attempt at reaching stoned viewers. I personally love the stylized insanity of Amer and the strange color of your body's tears, despite my qualms with certain aspects of each, but barely connected with the third film helmed by Elaine Cate and uh, Bruno Forzini's Let the Corpses uh, Tan. When I was in a bad mood, I, or was I in a bad mood? Did I expect something else or did they call it in? Or are all three of these possibilities simultaneously and equally valid? So basically the question is this. is like, I guess, um, what is it that makes a psychedelic film philosophically interesting or deep versus some kind of film that's just trying to shock or just trying to do something wild? And would something like Enter the Void be interesting, philosophically deep, thematically rich? Or is it kind of just like a sort of like, ooh, that's a cool stoner movie, maybe just like a glammed up version of, I don't know, some freaking Cheech and Chong film or something like that. A prestige version of a, of a stoner film. I think there's a, uh, there's certain, uh, I, I get what they're saying, but uh, I think there's some stoner movies, quote unquote, that have lots to say. And uh, I think Enter the Void is one of them. But kind of like the thing, how you said at the beginning of this podcast, where like, yeah, there's all this stuff going on and you can get into what it's saying, but also it works on the level of straight horror monster movie. I feel like your average stoner movie, it's like, 
yeah, the, uh, uh, if you're lucky, there's something to say. You can reach, re, uh, read into it uh, uh, usually about, you know, the state of mind and consciousness and whatever and, and uh, perception. But also uh, the base level is uh, at the end of the day, you'll just have some pretty shit to look at that's usually weird and cool. And, you know, that's usually what's at the base level of any stoner movie is there's going to be some psychedelic scene or some sort of colorful subjective uh imagery going on um which usually i think is unsuccessful in movies it's so mm. hard to get an actual like tripping scene done well or, or even people being high i think what works usually to me that works the best uh to show people being high is literally just not showing the subjectivity at all just showing a person laughing their ass off is usually what it looks like in reality and I think is more truthful to the moment, but then mm. somehow uh, expressing what they're going through in their head a different way. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys think? You know, I, I don't necessarily know that I would, if, if we're saying like all psychedelia is going hand in hand with, you know, quote unquote stoner movies. Um, Cause the, the movies he alluded to in his email uh, or he or she, they uh, alluded to uh, Bruno Forzani and uh, Helene Katet's films. Um, I, I I do understand the criticism of those pictures. Uh, I I share it sometimes, um, and I I think they they have a short film in one of the ABCs of Death anthologies that's about five minutes long, but is just like pure candy colored style on style, and it's just it, it, there's no dialogue. It's just like uh, all composition and sound mix, and it really really works for five minutes. But then when you stretch that out to an hour and a half. You know, you really got to be in the mood for it. You have to be on that wavelength. Um, I think uh, another recent example of that is uh, if you've seen Anna Biller's The Love Witch, which is kind of in a similar uh, uh, stylistic vein as uh, a lot of Stephanie Rothman's works, particularly The Velvet Vampire and stuff. Um, I, I really like those movies when I'm in the mood for them. But if I'm not in the mood for them, I, I you know, I... I you can't beat it out of me <laughs> like a lot of a lot of the time and maybe i've never smoked weed so maybe that that would help me get through some of those more like highly style, recommended style over substance but some sometimes you do get movies that come in that are like a clear homage to giallo films whether it's bruno forsani and helen Ted or someone like peter strickland uh and their movies are so much just about style over style and replicating a mood and sometimes i just i, I can't get into that okay I, I, I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a good example of kind of a movie that has psychedelic elements but is also has a ton to say and, and a voice and and has good freak-out psychedelic scenes or whatever have you. Hmm. Um, that's a, that's a movie, movie I think you could safely hit with the stoner stamp. Yeah, absolutely. That's a total stoner movie. Okay, so we uh, we can't keep going down further into the, uh, the the questions and things like that today, but I do want to just do one last final one. It was somebody who wrote in, Jason, talking about uh, maybe possibly doing PTA's The Master in the future. Now, we did There Will Be Blood, but um, there's obviously lots within PTA's filmography that we could explore. Um, let me just ask you this. If you were going to do one other PTA film, what would it be? Have we done Boogie Nights? I mean, that's my. I knew I could. I knew I could count on Ryan. Of all time. I knew I could count on Ryan to bring out Boogie Nights. I didn't have to I mean, waste shit. my vote. It's obviously his masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, that, Such a that would movie. be my pick. Um, uh, mine would be uh, Phantom Thread. It's uh, my, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, right. my my favorite filmmaker, and uh, I really? adore, I adore Phantom Thread, and I think that he, um, he's just really been in the pocket for the last few films that i mean i think all of his movies have, Vice, have their merits uh, I, I really like i, I really oh, like but that Kill actually me. that brings up an interesting question we may want to end on that the, the four john carpenter films that we covered this month are all from a miraculous eight film stretch hmm. i think kind of miraculous from the fog to they live some are better than others, but I think they're all pretty solid. I would say uh, sound off in the comments or hit us up on Twitter. Send us an email. Let us know what you think the best filmmaking streaks like that of all time are. Because I think Paul Thomas Anderson is is uh, still playing a hot hand. He's He's been you on had fire Coppola for a there while. in the middle of the seven. You know, you had like The Conversation, Godfather, oh, yeah. Apocalypse Now, Godfather 2, um, amongst a couple others. Yeah. Uh, 
that's a famous street. I'm uh, I'm curious yeah. what uh, what some of our uh, listeners might think. Uh, who are some of your favorite filmmakers? What are some of their best movies? Um, who is who has had the longest winning streak in film history? That is a great question. Oh, All right, we'll leave it on good. that. That's we'll leave it on that note. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Raymond, so they can debate with you about these streaks and the best filmmakers? <laughs> oh, sure. Out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can hit me up on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. That's C R E A M A T O R I A. Always happy to talk movies. And Ryan. And. Uh, actually, mine you can find on Raymond's over there. It's, uh, uh, it says it's at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter and it's right uh, here on YouTube. And uh, oh, and Ryan Shorts. I'm making. I'm going to release a good a, a movie with a, a video with a Memphis legend either this week or next week. It's gonna. I can't wait. Did you bring Robert Johnson back from the dead? I did not. He's a Mississippi legend. I have I, uh, one of my last. Oh, Mississippi. Was sorry. Him. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. That's why I was going to say, did you go to the crossroads and dig them up? Oh, uh, no, no. Awesome. Yeah, and if you want to hit me up, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can hit me up on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. That's it, folks. Carpenter. That's the wrap on our retrospective. We will be back with our next film, which will be the patron chosen film, which was Hook. So make sure y'all watch Hook. It won't be next week. It will be the week after. We're going to take a little bit of a break next week, but we're coming back hot with the film that y'all chose that was Ryan's suggestion. So that's what we're coming back to. All right, Ryan, send us out, bro. And if you you want to vote in future Patreon polls, patreon.com slash wisecrack. And always vote for my pick, please. (laughs) Just like you did this time. I really appreciate it, fans. You got this for me. All right, here we go. Goodbye, live from Antarctica. This has been Show Me the Meeting!